this morning, as Pastor Travis mentioned in our sermon, we're going to be talking about Hebrews chapter 11. We were there last week. Uh, we're going to dig a little bit further into it this week. And we're going to be talking uh, also about something we've talked about for the last few weeks, which is this theme of faith that's been running through uh, really the last couple chapters, but it really hits home in the verses that we're here today. And so the message is in t- the message's title is, uh, is on that theme of faith as well, and it's called A Future-Focused Faith. A future-focused faith, and the particular verses in Hebrews 11 that we're going to be hitting today are 13 through 22. And so if you haven't already turned in your Bibles to Hebrews 11, go ahead and do that now. I'll read these verses for us here in a second, then we'll pray, and then we'll unpack God's Word together. This is the Word of our Lord from the book of Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 22. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, But having seen and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Sound City, may we be blessed by the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come to you this morning grateful for the truth that you've called us to as a people, to be devoted to a life of faith in Jesus. I pray for myself and for the friends gathered here this morning that you'd cause us to grow in our understanding of what it really means to live out that life of faith. So God, we pray that you would transform us through the hearing and teaching of your word today. I pray, God, that you'd cause me to be faithful as your servant this morning. And I pray that you'd help us all draw near to you, Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's see if you guys are awake. The 9 a.m. did pretty good, so you guys should have a head start even on them. Let's see if you can finish this statement for me. To fail to plan is to? Plan to fail. All right, I heard it first over here somewhere. I'd throw candy if I was Pastor Travis, but I don't have any up here right now. Good job. Yeah, to fail to plan is to plan to fail, the saying goes. Do we believe that? We think that's generally a safe assumption? Yeah? Uh, so where are planners in here? Planners? Yeah? High C on the disc? Structured, details, all that, yeah, good, good, me too. Uh, How about the free spirits in the room, the non-planners, yeah? You're just all musicians, that's what you are. Musicians and artists. Okay, how about everybody else, somewhere in between, maybe, okay. Well, I think those who know me well would say that, yeah, I probably lean a little bit more toward the planner side of the spectrum. I remember, it always reminds me, thinking about things like this, of uh, a story uh, right after we moved to Seattle, and there were some friends of ours that were in town from Texas that were part of our last community group at the church that we were at there, and uh, they were in town, and we thought, well, we want to make sure that they see 
something cool in the city. We wanted to go try and find something for them to do while they were here. So my wife Stephanie had made some plans, and I got home from work. We hopped right back in the car. I trusted that she had a plan, and we're driving out of the driveway, and I said, uh, so where are we headed? Assuming that there was a plan. And she said, oh, we're going to this thing. I think it's like somewhere, like in Ballard or Fremont or like kind of somewhere down there. So I'm a planner, right? So I'm like, I think I said something like, uh, so we don't know where we're going then, is what you're telling me? <laughs> she says, oh, I think it's like some like, beer or wine thing. <laughs> like, okay, so you don't know where we're going, and you don't even really know what it's called either. Now, mind you, it's, it's late fall. We haven't moved to the city very long. It's late fall, and so it's been dark since like 3.30 p.m. It's been like pitch dark outside. <laughs> and that's the time, about that time, when I asked her, so... Is there parking for this, whatever it is that you know of? Oh, we'll just find something in the street. And so I'll plan her, and I know Ballard and Fremont well enough to know that that's going to be an absolute nightmare. Is anybody else my planners? You feel, you feel my, yes, amen. Okay, good, I, I see that hand. Uh, so did we ever arrive at this Fremont festival thingy? No, we did not. No, we did not. And why not? Because in this case, at least, the old saying of to, plan, to fail to plan is to plan to fail, at least in this case, it was true. At least in this case, it was true. Now, Stephanie was in the last service, so I had to kind of apologize to her in service, and uh, I had already asked her if I could share that story, and then I had also uh, said that uh, something that's very true of her, which is she's really actually a very good planner. It just wasn't true in this particular case. Uh, so, uh, to fail to plan is to plan to fail. And the point of the saying that it's trying to make is that you'll almost never reach a destination or a goal that you've never identified to begin with. That's kind of the point of that saying. A similar note, similar idea. How many of you have heard of Stephen Covey? Anybody know who Stephen Covey is? Yeah, maybe you've read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, one of his books. Well, in his book, he says something similar about the importance of kind of having plans and uh, having goals and having direction. In, in his book, Habit Number Two of Highly Effective People is this, begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. And what he says about that principle is beginning with the end in mind means beginning each day or task or project with a clear vision of your desired direction and destination, which focuses you on what you want to be and do. It, that idea of beginning with the end in mind, is your plan for success. So, To fail the plan is to plan to fail and begin with the end or destination in mind. Two pretty similar ideas, pretty similar principles, and what I want to offer to you this morning is that when it comes to living the life God calls his people to, both statements are not only true, but they're also pretty biblical. And what we'll see as we dig into our passage in Hebrews 11 this morning is a truth very similar to what these two sayings are communicating. Namely, what we'll see in Hebrews 11 is that a faithfulness in God It requires a a focused intentionality. It requires a a plan of sorts, a goal. And what we'll see in our passage today is that the life of faith requires beginning and continuing always with a certain end and destination in mind. Said another way, faithfulness to God in this life requires of us a future-focused faith. And that's our central proposition. That's our big idea for today. Faithfulness to God in this life requires of us a future-focused faith. And before we're done this morning, we're going to find five defining attributes of the future-focused faith that are meant to govern our own journey and walk with God. So let's get started. We'll pick it up in verse 13 again then. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, 
and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, there's a ton to unpack here. Actually, we're going to spend a lot of time on this verse, but we can't even really get past the first word uh, without going back and gaining a little bit of context to help us along. So let's do that first. Now, first, it's good for us to remember who the original audience, the original hearers and readers of the book of Hebrews are. And we've mentioned this in the past, in sermons in the past, that uh, the author of Hebrews' original audience is in large part a bunch of Jewish converts to Christianity who years after Jesus had come and then died and raised and was no longer on the scene, uh, they were beginning now to doubt their faith in him. And they were even beginning to consider denying him altogether and going back to living according to the Mosaic law, according to the Jewish faith that they'd left behind when they put their faith in Jesus as Savior and God. Now here in chapter 11 and in every chapter prior, the author of Hebrews wants to speak to those doubts. He wants to speak to the half-heartedness of his hearers and of his readers concerning Jesus. And the author of Hebrews means for us to receive that same encouragement in our hearts today. He means to address our doubts about faith in Christ, our own half-heartedness concerning God. So that's a little of the broader context of the book of Hebrews overall. But it's good for us to look at the immediate context as well, because that'll help us a bunch as we go through our passage this morning. So we'll start, and we'll just kind of walk through the beginning part of Hebrews 11 as well. First, in verses 1 and 2, we learned a couple of really important things in those first couple of verses. We learned first a really helpful definition of biblical faith, and then we also, number two, learned about the relationship between faith and God's saving work through Christ. Two pretty important ideas, huh? Let's take a quick look. Verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. So number one, this definition of faith is given to us. We're told that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And assurance here is the idea of confirmation. And hoped for here uh, means having an internal confidence. And so what's really being said is that faith is a confirmation of the promises of God that we put our confidence in. One scholar has said this about this particular verse, that it tells us as much about what faith does as it tells us about what faith is. So when we look at this verse, what do we see faith doing? What do we see it doing? Faith is that gift of God that works almost kind of like a a claim check that you can hold in your hand, giving us a, a steadfast confidence concerning the promises of God, the promises that we've not yet seen in many cases. It's the assurance from God that allows us to then, in response, live out a future-focused faith. Faith is that thing, that internal witness that connects our believing with our living and with our doing. Verse 2 confirms this whole idea, saying, For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. The people of old being referred to here, these are the uh, fathers in faith within this Jewish community. It's the patriarchs is what we often call them, the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. And what's the author of Hebrews saying about the faith of these people of old? He's saying that they have their commendation from God because of their lived-out faith in God's future-focused promises. And commendation here means to have an approving testimony. And we know that from the events that we're going to walk through here in the next several verses that the approving testimony that they have from God is his declaring of them to be righteous. His declaring of them to be innocent before him because of their lived-out, future-focused faith. So that's verses 1 and 2. In verses 4 and then a bunch following, um, for starters in 4, Abel is declared righteous by God because of his faith. 
And then in verse 5, it's Enoch. In verse 7, it's Noah. And in verses 8 through 12, it's Abraham and Sarah. Some of those Pastor Aaron covered last week. And in those verses, the various ways in which all of these imperfect but heroes of the faith lived out their future-focused faith in God, they're all cataloged and really celebrated in these verses in the first half of chapter 11. So that's where we pick things up in verse 13. The author of Hebrews unpacking what faith is, what it does, and then giving us example after example of these heroes of old who lived out a future-focused faith in God's promises and who were brought into a saving relationship with God because of it. So now, now we can go back to verse 13 with greater context, and when we read, these all died in faith, now we know who these are, right? Yeah, these ones who died in verse 13, they're these imperfect yet declared righteous ones. Imperfect yet declared righteous heroes of the faith who lived out their lives according to God's promises. They're the men and women of faith mentioned in verses 4 through 12 that we just skimmed through, and then we'll see a whole bunch more of them in verses 17 and following. And what the author of Hebrews wants to make clear here in these verses that we're going to go through, it's talking about the patriarchs in general, but even more specifically, he's going to be talking about Abraham and his immediate descendants. And we'll see that as we go through the verses as we study them today. So, what are these verses saying? What's this first verse saying about these Jewish fathers of Christianity, these patriarchs? It says of them first that they died in faith. They died in faith, meaning that they died with that internal, with that claim check in intact still, that they were living according to, that they were sustained by their faith in their dying just as much as they were in their living. And that's our first defining attribute of the future-focused faith. Those with a future-focused faith live lives of enduring faith even unto death. Those with a future-focused faith live lives of enduring faith even unto death. Let's see what else it says about these who died well in our verse. Well, for starters, it says that at the time of their deaths, they had not yet received all that God had promised them. But let's take a second and just remember, what were these promises? What are these promises that they had not yet fully received? Well, we've talked about it several times before in this book, and you guys know many of these stories. But in in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and elsewhere in the scriptures, Abraham is said to have received three primary promises from God. The first one is the promise of a land of Israel's own to live in, a promised land. The second one is the promise that Abraham and his descendants would become a a great nation, a huge nation, uh, with as many people in it as stars in the sky or grains of sand uh, on the beaches. That's what Genesis 22, 17 says. So that's the second promise. So first one is land. Second one is a great nation, a great people. And number three, the promise that all the nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham's family line. And that's a, that's a foreshadowing, foreshadowing to uh, the promise of Jesus, who would one day come and make available to all the peoples of the earth salvation from the penalty of their sins and reconciliation and peace with God. As verse 13 continues, it says that Abraham and his descendants had by faith seen and greeted from afar the fulfillment of these promises Meaning a couple things. First of all, that Abraham, in his lifetime, had seen some small parts of the promises begin to be fulfilled. But far more than that, having seen and greeted from afar the fulfillment of God's promises, means that Abraham and the other Jewish fathers of the Christian faith lived their lives in a way that presently declared God's future promises as having already been fulfilled. It's kind of a heady idea. And what, what would that mean for us? What would that look like for us? How can we understand that. Well, let me give one example. 
So I'd be willing to guess, if you've lived here very long, that most of us have been on one of the Washington State ferries before, right? When we drive our cars onto the ferry, we're doing so by faith in a number of promises. And the ultimate promise we're trusting in is that the ferry will carry us to our destination, to Whidbey Island or to Bainbridge or Kingston or whatever. And so let's picture that. You're on the ferry, you're headed across the sound, and typically you might get out of the car, you might go over and stand against the railing and look out over the water. And past that, you might look on toward your destination. And in that moment, you can see at a distance the fulfillment of that promise that you've trusted in. In your heart and mind, you're already greeting from afar your arrival onto Whidbey Island, let's say, and you're thinking about the promise of your day at the beach being fulfilled. Well, in that moment, your actions, your life are regulated by faith. So what happens next? Well, by faith, you go back from the railing and you get into your car again because now you feel like you're beginning to approach the port. By faith, you put your seatbelt back on because you trust that you'll soon be driving off the ferry and onto the island, and then you're looking forward to moving on from there toward the beach. By faith, you start your car, you wait patiently, trusting that the ferry workers will eventually declare that it's time for you to exit the ferry. By faith, you drive your car off the ferry onto solid ground at Whidbey Island and start heading toward the promise of the beach that was your original destination. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, over and over again, you operated by faith, having confidence in the promises related to your arrival at your destination. Your every choice was governed and regulated by faith. Your entire life, for the entire length of your journey, even though some of those promises were still far off, was regulated by faith while you were on that journey. The life of faith in God through Jesus is no different. The life of faith in God through Jesus is no different. In John 8, 56, Jesus himself speaks to Abraham's future-focused faith and his trust in God's promises as seen from afar. To a group of Jewish unbelievers, Jesus says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He sought and was glad. He sought and was glad. Throughout the scriptures, there are commands of God. God commands us, he entreats us to believe and do all sorts of things that have a largely future result. This is especially true in Christ. Come and follow me, Jesus tells us. Know the truth and turn from your life of sin. Spend your life obeying my son Jesus God says, who gave his life for you. Receive my grace, receive my peace, receive salvation from the penalty of your sins. Be reconciled in a relationship with me. Spend eternity with me over and over again in the pages of the Bible. God pleads with us, trust my promises. Even if right now, just for a little while, you can only see some of them from afar. Sound City, faithfulness to God in this life requires of us a future-focused faith. And those with a future-focused faith live lives regulated by a trust in God's promises. Those with a future-focused faith live lives regulated by a trust in God's promises. And that's our second defining attribute of the future-focused faith. At the end of verse 13, then, uh, there's one more description of Abraham and his family, which says, they acknowledge themselves to be strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that Abraham and his family, and by extension, those of us who have put our faith in 
Christ and live for him as well. The reason that they and we are able to die in faith, trusting the not yet fulfilled promises of God, is related to who we confess ourselves to be. Namely, verse 13 says, we're not citizens of this world, but exiles and strangers. Now, we're not going to have time to dig into all the Greek behind uh, our English words in this particular verse like I'd like to, but if you'll take my word for it, let me offer that the author of Hebrews is saying here something a bit stronger than what our English words first convey. Acknowledged here sounds kind of passive to our ears, where the nuance in the original is stronger, leaning more into this idea of confession and profession. The word stranger here includes the idea of being an alien or a foreigner in a place. There's a negative connotation to it as well. It's not a label that you would have wanted to own, let alone confess publicly to others, because it kind of would have made you a little bit of a second-class citizen. Then there's the word exile. The Greek word here also means sojourner. Sojourner. And a sojourner is one who passes through one place on their way to somewhere else. A sojourner is someone who lives temporarily, who lives in an unsettled way without a home. Verse 14 then helps us piece all this together by saying, for people who speak like this, those who confess and profess to be strangers and aliens and sojourners and exiles, those who live and speak this way, they make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, that they're seeking citizenship somewhere other than this earth, according to verse 13. Let's pause on that for a moment. In Genesis 12:1, God calls Abraham to leave his own country in Mesopotamia and to go and live in a place that God will show him. It's the land of Canaan. It's the promised land that they'll eventually receive as an inheritance. But in Exodus 3:8, among lots of other places in Scripture, what we're told about this land is that it's a land flowing with milk and honey. You guys have heard that expression? A land flowing with milk and honey. And this is a way of saying that this place that he's going to give them as an inheritance, it has great agricultural success. It's a really prosperous land. And yet the patriarchs of faith here in Hebrews 11 that we're reading about, they didn't look at the prosperity of this land and say to themselves, sweet, I'm just going to start spending all my time just soaking in all that this prosperous land has to offer. I'm just going to kick my feet up. No, Abraham didn't say that. He didn't say, uh, I know God's made me all sorts of other promises, but this one is good enough. I'm just going to kick back and enjoy myself. No, Abraham says, I'm just a sojourner here. He says, I'm just an alien, a stranger in this city, a second-class citizen at best on this earth. That's how the patriarchs lived. That's how Abraham lived as one who professed with his words and with his life that he had a different homeland, that his citizenship was in a different city. Well, how about us? How about you? Biblically speaking, do you oftentimes feel a little bit out of place, like a stranger in this world? Or maybe only once in a great while, or maybe not very much at all. If others were to look carefully at your life, would they say that your citizenship is in this world, or somewhere else. Sound City, does your pattern of living profess to God and to this world that you are not of this world? Does our pattern of living profess to God and to this world that we're not of this world? Because if we're not citizens here, then what ought our time be spent doing while we are here? If we're not citizens here, what ought our finances look like and what ought our stewardship of everything that we have look like? If 
As God's people, we're sojourners just passing through the places he's brought us to while we faithfully wait for another homeland. If we're sojourners, what should all our relationships look like? How ought the work we do be done? And what should the level, the priority of our workplaces and jobs have in our lives? If we're but foreigners in this life, then what convictions and values and principles of character ought to ground our every word and choice and action and motive? How might the reality that uh, we're called to be faithful exiles on this earth change the way we think about and respond to even things like what we all read about and watched this week, these horrific killings all over the news in Dallas and in Baton Rouge and elsewhere? How might the reality that we're called to be faithful exiles on this earth change how we respond to the regular terrorist attacks and killings happening in the name of Islam all over the world? How might the reality that we're called to be faithful exiles on this earth change how we respond to a a redefining of sexuality and marriage that is utterly foreign to God's definition of such things? How might our identity in Christ and our status as aliens here inform how we think, how we grieve, how we serve, how we play, how we respond to laws, how we live as temporary citizens in our cities and in this nation? Sound City, faithfulness to God in this life requires of us a future-focused faith. And those with a future-focused faith live the life of a sojourner who isn't home yet. And that's our third defining attribute of the future-focused faith. As we move on to verse 15 then, and the beginning of verse 16, we'll get a closer look at the fourth defining attribute of a future-focused faith. The author of Hebrews has just gotten finished recounting for his readers and hearers and for us how the patriarchs, and especially how Abraham, had lived out his faith in God by living as a foreigner and a stranger in the earth, as one whose citizenship was of a different homeland. In verse 15, in the beginning of 16, then, the author of Hebrews claims this, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Now, the author of Hebrews here is doing something that every good preacher and teacher of God's word learns to do. He's answering the objections and questions that some might have to what he's just said. And what he's anticipating here is that some might have thought concerning these verses, oh, Abraham's just homesick for Mesopotamia. He's just homesick for Mesopotamia, that land that God had called him out of back in Genesis 12. But what the author of Hebrews wants to make really clear to us here is that Abraham could have gone back any time he wanted. He could have gone back any time he wanted. And so what Abraham is certainly not professing is that he's a foreigner and a stranger in this promised land, but that he'd feel very much at home if he could just go back and put his feet up in Mesopotamia. No, the author of Hebrews says that if that was the case, he'd had plenty of opportunity to do that already. He could do that any time he wanted. What verse 16 then makes crystal clear is that neither Abraham nor any of us with a future-focused faith will find their homeland on this side of eternity, no matter how prosperous the land, no matter how cool the city, no matter how much they'll pay you to move there. For all those having a biblical faith, perseverance in faith in God's promises is normative, not retreating back to a comfortable worldly substitute. Wouldn't this have been a compelling text for those first readers and hearers of the book of Hebrews, since they themselves were so tempted to fall back into Judaism and to renounce their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior? 
you'll remember that culturally speaking, uh, we're talking about being probably in Rome when the author of Hebrews was writing his text, probably around 60 AD or so, and in that time and place, it would surely have been much easier for these converts to Christianity from Judaism to just go back to Judaism, just to fold into their previous ways. If they'd have done that, that meant no more ridicule, no more ostracizing, no more risking their lives by continuing to live as aliens and exiles in what had previously been their homeland. Likewise, how much simpler would it be for us to find our homeland and our citizenship in this life, in the cities that we live in on this earth? How much easier would it seem, initially anyways, to put our faith in worldly substitutes and false saviors instead of the one who made the world to begin with? Yet we, like they who number among those to whom God has given the gift of faith, we desire a better country and a heavenly one, verse 16 says. Church, faithfulness to God in this life requires of us a future-focused faith, and those with a future-focused faith live lives that persevere in trusting God's promises rather than retreating to worldly substitutes. And that's our fourth defining attribute of the future-focused faith. But on our way to discovering the fifth defining attribute of the future-focused faith, let's not skip too fast past this promised heavenly homeland, this better country that those of us who endure in faith are trying to reach. Because it's in understanding the promised heavenly homeland that we can make the best sense out of verse 1 of chapter 11, where it defines faith for us in the first place. That definition that spoke of faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. You might recall that in verses 8 through 10, which Pastor Aaron covered last week, uh, those verses record Abraham's obedience to God's call to depart from his former homeland and go where God was going to tell him to go. In verses 8 and 9, it says that by faith, Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. And then verse 10 tells us why he was willing to do so, saying this, that it was because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, that's helpful to us. When we look at verse 10 and 16 together, then, we can see that this better country, this heavenly homeland of which Abraham's citizenship rested, is not a city filled with tents of sojourners and resident aliens, but it's a heavenly city, the heavenly city, in fact, built with strong foundations, a city built and designed by God. You see, Abraham realized somewhere along the way that uh, the whole promise that God had given to him and to his descendants. Abraham knew that even this earthly promised land that would become an inheritance for Israel, that it was only a shadow of the eternal city that God has built and designed himself for Abraham and all of his spiritual descendants. It's the city that the Apostle John wrote about in Revelation uh, chapter 21 where he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The Apostle John continues then and tells us a little bit about what that city will look like. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I don't know about you guys, 
but I think I agree with Abraham. That sure sounds like a better country, a better city than any cheap substitute that I know of on this earth. The rest of verse 16 then finishes out the central thought of the author of Hebrews in our passage today, and it's also where we'll find the fifth defining attribute of the future-focused faith. And the second half of verse 16 builds on what's come before it, and what it confirms for us is this, that because Abraham and his spiritual descendants lived lives of enduring faith even unto death, because they lived lives shaped, defined, governed, regulated by a trust in God's promises, because they lived as sojourners who weren't home yet while on this earth, because they lived lives that persevered in trusting God's promises and not retreating to worldly substitutes, therefore, verse 16 says, Therefore, because of these things, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he's prepared for such faithful ones a better country, the text says, a heavenly city, a dwelling place with God, a place to call home forever. Forever. Is that good news to anyone today, Sound City? Christians, and especially non-Christians, don't miss this. The author of Hebrews is speaking this sweet promise to his doubting Jewish converts to faith in Jesus, and he's speaking this same unbelievable promise to us here right now. The truth of this passage that the author of Hebrews is summing up for us here at the end of verse 16 is this, that if you will give your life to the gentle yoke of following Jesus and remain steadfast in faith, that he willingly went to the cross and was crucified there in your place for your sins in order to secure for you a citizenship in that heavenly city of strong foundations for all eternity, then God will not be ashamed to be called your God. John Calvin said this, It is a singular honor when God makes men illustrious by attaching his name to them, and this privilege depends on faith. For once the Holy Fathers aspired to a celestial country, God counted them as citizens. What could be more humbling? What could be more lovely than a sovereign God, the sovereign God of the whole universe, being willing to not only save us from our sins, but also bring us into restored relationship with him and then give us his name? He gives us his name. And in this sweet promise of verse 16, we also find the fifth and final defining attribute of the future-focused faith that those with a future-focused faith are commended by God as righteous before him because of Jesus and are given eternal citizenship in the city God's prepared for his people. In the remaining verses in our passage today, which we're not going to have a lot of time to unpack, the author of Hebrews gives us another stream of examples of Uh, like the ones that we saw at the beginning of chapter 11, examples of the future-focused faith of the Jewish fathers of the Christian faith. In verses 17 through 19, which Pastor Aaron covered last week, we hear more about the enduring faith of Abraham being lived out. In verse 20, we're reminded of the steadfast faith of Isaac. In verse 21, we're taken back and shown the persevering faith of Jacob, which is uh, of a story from Genesis 48. And then finally, in verse 22, the author of Hebrews reminds us of Joseph's active, lived-out faith. And if we took the time to fully investigate the lives of each of these men given to us by the author of Hebrews as examples, we'd see even more clearly the future-focused faith of each one of them. We'd see that each one undoubtedly lived a life of enduring faith even unto death. That each one of them lived lives shaped and defined and regulated by a trust in God's promises. That each one lived as a sojourner. That each one had a life that persevered in trusting God's promises rather than retreating to worldly substitutes. And that as a result, 
of their imperfect yet genuine and wholehearted lives of faith, they were each commended by God as righteous before him and were given eternal citizenship in God's city that he's prepared for his people. And all of this because they believed in and lived according to the then future promises of God concerning the one who would one day come and ultimately fulfill God's promises to Abraham. And who's that, Sound City? Who's that? Jesus. Yeah, that's always a safe answer in church. (laughs) It's Jesus. He's the one that will one day come and ultimately fulfill God's promises to Abraham. The Apostle Paul helps us keep all these details straight and see this even more clearly. In Galatians 3.16, it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. We know from the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, that he's in the bloodline of Abraham. And so what Paul makes clear here in Galatians is that same good news. The good news that the author of Hebrews was wanting to encourage his first audience of doubting Christian or doubting Jewish converts with. The good news that their faith in Jesus is well-founded because he, Jesus, is the singular offspring of Abraham through whom God's promises will ultimately be fulfilled. He wants to remind them that it's critical to their inheritance of God's promises that they remain steadfast in their faith in Jesus as Savior and God. And he wants to lovingly warn them that their citizenship in the promised heavenly homeland depends on their giving their lives to the living out of an enduring faith in Jesus. Can I just say, as one of your pastors, I want to encourage you and remind you and lovingly warn you of the truths of these verses as well. For those among us this morning who would not claim Jesus as Lord, God, and Savior, can I just lovingly remind you and warn you what Jesus himself says in Matthew 10, 33? That whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's a hard truth. And if you ask me, the alternative is quite a bit better. The other alternative, as verse 16 showed us today, is that you can commit your life to God And then he gives his name to you. He gives his name to us. You can confess that you're a sinner who needs a Savior and that that Savior is Jesus and that you believe that his death paid the penalty for your sins and then you can begin to live the life of faith, the life of a future-focused faith with the promise of an eternal heavenly homeland with God. And if you're in here today and if you've never put your faith in Christ and maybe for the first time you find yourself in this awkward position of wanting to give your life to God through Jesus by faith, then please don't leave here today without talking to one of us. We want to celebrate that with you, and we want to talk with you about next steps and where to go from here. All right, now for the Christians in the room. For the Christians in here this morning, I don't know that I can do better than Calvin in summing up God's charge to us today concerning this passage in Hebrews 11. And so here's a closing thought from Calvin for all of us who have already entered into the life of faith. God gave to the fathers only a taste of that grace which is largely poured on us, though he showed to them at a distance only an obscure representation of Christ who is now set forth to us clearly before our eyes. Yet they were satisfied and never fell away from their faith. How much greater reason then have we at this day to persevere? For if they nevertheless persevered even unto death, what sloth will it be 
to become wearied in faith when we have so many helps that the Lord sustains us by. We really do have so many helps, don't we? By God's grace, we have every tool we need to live out the future-focused faith that he's called each one of us to. Sound City, may we be a people enduringly committed to living out the spirit of the Apostle Paul's words in Colossians 3. May we be a people who set our minds on things above and not on things that are on this earth, this temporary home of sojourning. For by faith we have died to such things, and our lives are now bound together and hidden with Christ in God for all eternity. Amen? Amen. Well, with that, I'd like to turn us to a time of responding to what God's been showing us today and teaching us. And as we often do, we'll do that in a number of ways. First, we'll do that through giving. So if our financial stewards uh, will come, we'll begin our response through giving. And one of the key verses that we're often looking at as we think about worshiping God through our giving is from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 7, which says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Said another way, uh, the Bible would not have us be a people who worships our money, but who worship with the money that God's entrusted to our care. If you're a guest here, uh, this isn't for you necessarily. We would never want to take away the opportunity for you to worship through giving, um, but you're in no way expected to, to give. We're just glad you're here with us. Now, for the rest of us, let me remind you of a couple more ways that you can give in addition to the baskets that are coming around. Uh, hopefully up on the screens there'll be um, some information about how you can text to give. You just text the word give to the number on your screen and then you follow the instructions that are being sent to you. You can also give online uh, off our website and that's perhaps one of the best ways to give because you can set up scheduled giving uh, which is helpful for us for planning and you can also make sure that we get the most uh, of the gift that you give from a fees perspective. There's also giving envelopes that are uh, in the foyer if those would be helpful to you and out there as well at the Connect Desk is a place where you can drop those off once you've completed them. In a moment, you'll also see uh, the same folks that are passing the baskets for you now coming around with the communion elements. And when they do, I just ask that you hold on to those elements. Don't take them right away. Hold on to them uh, for a minute, and then uh, we'll take them together here after I pray in just a minute. But before we get to that, let me also read a few discussion questions for us to consider, to reflect on in our community groups and just for personal reflection throughout the week that are based on the message. These are in your weekly as well, but let me read them for us now. Number one, what does it mean that faithfulness to God in this life requires of us a future-focused faith? How are you doing so far? And then share that with your group. And number two, in your daily life, do you identify more as a citizen of this world or as a citizen of the heavenly city that Hebrews 11 speaks of? How does and how should your answer impact your life day to day? Number three, in what parts of your life are, you, are your thinking and doing not regulated by your faith in Jesus? And what would it look like if you were to operate in faithfulness to God's promises in those areas of your life? What would change? How would it change? Number four, according to today's message, what is required of us in order that we be counted among those to whom God has given his name and for whom God has prepared his heavenly city? You can discuss that with your group as well. Now, we're also a church that has a value uh, of prayer, and so here's a couple prayer points to get you started this week, too. Uh, number one, pray that as individuals and as a church, we would increasingly trust in God's word and promises, and that we'd increasingly live out a future-focused faith. And then number two, 
Let's be praying for those who aren't yet Christians that they'd respond to God's grace through faith in Jesus. Now, another way that uh, we'll respond this morning is through communion. This is a time where all who are Christians are welcome to receive the Lord's Supper. And we call this a memorial meal because the bread reminds us of Jesus' body broken for us and the juice reminds us of his blood shed for us. And there are scriptures that talk about this as well that encourage us to remember him in this way. From 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, I think most of you have the elements by now. So uh, as you receive those, just hold on to those. And then as we respond through song here in a moment in worship to Jesus, you feel free to take the elements at that time as you see fit. So let's go ahead and do this. Let's stand together. I'll pray for us. And then we'll respond. Let's pray. God, as we uh, go out from here this morning, I pray that you'd allow us to do so as a people who've been changed by your grace and stretched in our understanding of the future-focused faith that you've called us all to. Pray that we'd be uh, people empowered by your spirit as we go out from here today to live out that good calling of the life and faith in you, God. And as sojourners and exiles in this world, we pray that you'd encourage our hearts as we go and that you'd cause us to live joyfully in this city while we wait expectantly to join you in the better country, the eternal city that you've prepared for your people. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your kindness to us in Jesus, and it's through your Son and by our spirit we pray these things. Amen.